Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the beloved Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Rob Long of National Review Online is in for Jim Garrity today as Jim wraps up his final day of vacation. Rob is also the co-founder of Ricochet, the co-host of the Glop podcast, which is also found on Ricochet. We have two good martinis today, as well as one bad. So, Rob, let's dive right well, it's in. Friday. you got to have a good, you know. Yeah, and on a, on a fun note, at least we tried right. to. Some some weeks we're luckier than others. But <laughs> yeah. let's start with Trump and Twitter in the good martini, which doesn't happen too often. As many folks know by now, uh, the president initially approved a retaliatory strike against Iran. But after the mission got underway, but before any munitions were launched, he thought differently and decided to scrap the mission, at least for the moment. It doesn't mean there won't be any retaliation for the shooting down of the U.S. drone. But according to the president, he decided that the human toll on the other side would be too great in response to an unmanned drone going down. So here is the four-tweet thread from the president today. And, of course, the first two words in the tweet are, President Obama made a desperate and terrible deal with Iran, gave them $150 billion plus $1.8 billion in cash. Iran was in big trouble and he bailed them out, gave them a free path to nuclear weapons, and soon, instead of saying thank you, Iran yelled death to America. I terminated the deal, which was not even ratified by Congress, and imposed strong sanctions. They are a much weakened nation today than at the beginning of my presidency, when they were causing major problems throughout the Middle East. Now they are bust. On Monday, they shot down an unmanned drone flying in international waters. We were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different sites when I asked, How many will die? 150 people, sir, was the answer from a general. Ten minutes before the strike, I stopped it. Not proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. I am in no hurry. Our military is rebuilt, new, and ready to go. By far the best in the world. Sanctions are biting, and more added last night. Iran can never have nuclear weapons, not against the USA, and not against the world. So, Rob, this one's a little bit complicated. You like? <laughs> Who was that? Who tweeted that? <laughs> Crazy. Only a couple of words were in all caps, so you wonder if it actually was him. But you like the idea that he thought better of it, a little more reserved than a lot of folks thought he might be in this situation. But you don't like the fact that this played out so publicly. Yeah, I th- you know, the problem with Trump is that he's so raw and open. We just know what his brain is. We know when he's feeling hurt or feeling insulted. He's just a big open wound. And so when you're dealing with something like this, it's kind of a better idea to just keep your own counsel and be silent, but, you know, deadly. But I'm glad he pulled back. I think that was probably the smart move. Sometimes it's enough to say we have a constellation of plans in place for retaliation, and we're not going to do it. The more he doesn't do it, the more it looks like restraint to him and the more he's going to get support from our uh, you know, putative allies around the world, which is the important thing. So that was a, uh, not only a presidential action reserving, obviously, the right to strike in the future. But it was a presidential way to describe that action on Twitter. So I don't know. Maybe maybe he's been having too many martinis or something. But <laughs> the, these, are good, these are good things. What do you make of the reaction, mainly by the left on, on Twitter, which is always very measured and, and calm? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that if he had gone through with this, of course, he would have been a horrible warmonger. And even though he pulled back, he's pretty much a horrible warmonger. So <laughs> the guy can't win. Yeah, well, I mean, in a certain sense, Trump is right about that. There's absolutely no way ever for him to succeed in their eyes. So it doesn't really matter what they say. They're not going to like what he did. But I think for the rest of us who want him to be the best president possible, look, he's better or worse. He's our president of this country, all of ours. This is a good sign, it's a sign that he's 
not only listening, but he's ultimately, if it did unfold the way he says it unfolded, that is exactly how America's supposed to flex its muscle with a civilian in charge, ultimately making the decision, not a general, not a fait accompli, not a military sort of, uh, you know, they, they call it go fever in the military where you, you're going to go no matter what. And it's nice to have a civilian in charge to say, no, not right now. And the other thing we don't really know is everything seems weird in the Trump administration. Everything seems crazy and unprecedented. But we don't know how often this happens. We only know we found out about it last night. But, you know, I would be shocked if this didn't happen regularly under Obama, regularly under George W. Bush, regularly under Clinton. This seems like the kind of thing that happens often. And we just are focusing on it now because Trump's doing it. But I suspect that this is more normal than we up till now understood. We generally like transparency, but we don't always need transparency, at least in the moment. Sometimes you can wait for things to be declassified or just explain <laughs> yeah. things after something's been resolved. We don't necessarily need the uh, the live tweeting. But that's the thing. If people complain, that, oh, you know, Trump, he lies, he lies. He lies. Trump is I, I got to be the most transparent president we've ever had. We know how he feels day to day. We know. He watches TV and he gets mad and he tweets. We know everything. I mean, this guy is an open book. So I suspect that it unfolded just that way. And I suspect that that was actually his feeling. And, and I suspect that maybe someone gave him some counsel yesterday morning saying, well, you know what? There are four or five things we should do before we start bombing. We can always bomb. And he agreed. That's good. It is good. There had been some speculation on social media that he watched Tucker Carlson last night, who doesn't want military action in Iran and therefore pulled back. But Maggie Haberman of The New York Times poured cold water on that, saying that the decision was made before 8 p.m. when uh, Tucker went on the air. Although there had been pieces earlier in the week that he's actually been talking off air with Tucker Carlson about foreign policy. So uh, the phone calls with Hannity, the phone calls with Tucker Carlson. Who's next? The, the Fox primetime lineup seems to be uh, the National Security Council at this point. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably go with uh, Bream and Bear before I'd go with some of the others. But... <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. But, you know, like uh, – but on the other hand, it's like we're trying desperately to come up – I mean, we not we, but people are trying desperately to come up with some kind of odd reason why he changed his mind as if, first of all, the premise being that this never happens, which I don't think is true with any president, and the second being that he actually gave a pretty cogent, believable explanation. The idea that killing 100 people, killing a dozen people is not proportional – seems to me to be a very, very smart way to look at it. And the way you look at it when you're the president of the United States may not be the way you look at it when you're a national security advisor or when you're, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but it is the way the president of the United States often thinks about these things. And this president is no different. I mean, well, I love the idea. It's like, we should be celebrating this, but instead we're sort of like, well, wait a minute. What really happened? Well, you know, maybe it really happened this way. All right, let's move on to our second good martini now. And Rob, with 24 candidates by my count running for president for the Democrats and 20 at least in, uh, allowed on the stage for the first round of debates. Well, yes. It's only 11.45. <laughs> That's right. It was inevitable that uh, the knives were going to come out as we get closer and closer to major events like debates and eventually the first caucuses and primaries in the country, but we've already got some fisticuffs going on, verbal, of course. Let's start with Biden and Booker. This is Politico. After Senator Cory Booker appeared on CNN Wednesday night, sounding off on Joe Biden's recent comments surrounding segregationists, the New Jersey Democrat got a phone call. It was the former vice president. 
Biden, however, did not apologize for his remarks at a New York fundraiser, recalling that, quote, at least there was some civility, unquote, when he worked with segregationists in the Senate and that one of those senators never called him boy but always called him son. Nor did he apologize for telling reporters outside a fundraiser on Wednesday that it was Booker, one of his rivals for the Democratic presidential nomination, who needed to apologize. The two carried on a polite conversation with the former vice president intent on talking through tensions that had flared in recent days, according to two sources familiar with the call. But that didn't happen. Biden's campaign had sent talking points to surrogates that highlighted the vice president's work on civil rights and noted that Biden's opponents had worked with officials who might be considered lightning rods to Democrats, including former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who worked with Booker on some things, a move that further inflamed the situation. Quote, I find it remarkable that the surrogate talking points they were sending around as they were trying to contain this include no mention of the language the vice president used and instead tried to spin that the vice president is being criticized for working with people he disagreed with, a Booker aide said. But that's not the only feud going on. A lot of folks think that ideologically, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are pretty much on the same page. But Bernie had been pretty far ahead of Warren in the early stages of the campaign. Now a lot of polls show them essentially tied and In a couple of them, Elizabeth Warren has even pulled ahead a little bit. So Chris Cuomo asked Bernie Sanders about that on CNN. Uh, What do you think the reason is that Elizabeth Warren is catching up to you in polls? Do you believe that people see her as the more electable version of Bernie Sanders? Well, you know, I think we are running uh, against a lot of problems. Uh, I think that there are a certain number of people who would like to see a woman elected, and I understand that. Uh, There are people who would like to uh, see somebody who is younger, and I understand that also. There's more. Over in Politico on Wednesday, there was a story that said centrists are coming around to Elizabeth Warren as an alternative to Bernie Sanders. And Sanders responded by retweeting it from his account, noting, quote, the cat is out of the bag. The corporate wing of the Democratic Party is publicly anybody but Bernie. Our progressive agenda of Medicare for all. Breaking up the big banks, taking on drug companies and raising wages is the real threat to the billionaire class, which now he apparently lumps Elizabeth Warren into. So, uh, Rob, <laughs> how much popcorn do you have ready over there? I, so much. I popcorn. And then after popcorn, you can have jujubes and milk duds. It's going to be this fantastic you know, movie. This is just sort of standard Democratic Party behavior in a primary, especially a wide open primary. I mean, they did it in 2008. It's wide open. So everybody feels like they have a shot. And it's so tight on the Bernie wing, the far left socialist wing of the Democratic Party. It's so tight there. Like you, he, he, Bernie's correct. Like to prefer Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders, it's just really a style or taste choice. They're both radical left wing socialists. So it doesn't really matter. Like which I mean, it's not a policy difference. It's just a taste difference. And Bernie feels like you know he's an old white dude with a sort of angry face, and he's just not gonna. He's not going to be able to compete. And I think he's correct in that respect. The Biden side of it is is um, it's a more traditional Democratic Party candidate. Right. I mean, traditionally, well, not traditionally, but past 30 years, 40 years, Democratic Party candidates have had to do two things. One, be liberal enough for Democrats, but also be conservative enough for America. And that's something that successful very successful Democratic politicians have managed to do. Bill Clinton managed to do it, and Barack Obama managed to do it in the primaries. So Biden's just walking the path that's been walked before, and every time he is offends somebody or foot-in-mouth diseases Biden often has or makes a quote-unquote gaffe, 
it reinforces his general normalness. Normal Americans see what he's saying. They know exactly what he meant. He meant you show up in the Senate with a whole bunch of people, some of whom you like, some of whom you don't like, but you got to work with them. And most Americans, that's, that is a definition of an American workplace, right? You show up and you don't like everybody, but you got to do the job. And so Biden seems normal. And normal is going to be not normal every time. And I think he's smart that way. And it costs him nothing to get into a fight with Cory Booker until I read about it. I had forgotten Cory Booker was even running, as most Americans have. So <laughs> Biden's in great shape. If I had money to put down, I would put down money on Biden. Now, that might be wishful thinking because I think Biden is the, the least crazy socialist who could win. But, <laughs> you know, we take what we can get. He's going to be a socialist as he needs to be to win the nomination. I <laughs> yeah, think right, right. Basically what we've learned over the past few weeks. And I don't know. I, I think you're right about how where Joe Biden comes down is probably the more electable spot for the Democrats in the long term. But I also get this feeling that he's constantly playing catch up to the far more liberal wing of the party that drives the Twitter sphere and in yeah. some in some ways cable news. And so because he's always playing catch up, he's always trying to explain himself. And I almost feel like at some point, because the media wants to drag the country to the left from from where it is right now, that they're almost like a base yeah. runner on first base, looking to the third base coach, whether that's the party or some other powerful figure on, on the left, almost like in 2008 when they were all on Hillary's side until Obama started to gain a little bit. And all of a sudden they switched in about a 24 hour period. And uh, Hillary was yesterday's news and Barack Obama was the fresh face and he's our hero now. But remember, that's how you win. I mean, that's that. Those are successful politicians. I mean, people voted a lot. Fifty-three million people voted for Barack Obama. It was the biggest majority popular vote in a long time, and they voted for him because they thought he was normal and moderate. Now it turns out he was kind of a you know crazy communist, but he got in right. And whoever runs in twenty twenty is going to be running with a pretty good economy, even if it softens a little. It's not going to crap. Pretty good economy, a growing economy. Pretty tight labor market. I mean, even if it gets a little looser, it's still not going to, you know, it's three. I mean, it's it's below the institutional number it's supposed to be. So you, you what are you really going to run for? You're going to run. I mean, you can run. You can be angry about billionaires, and the billionaire class, if you want. And you may be able to sway a bunch of people. But it seems to me that the winning argument for the Democrats is Trump's an anomaly. He makes us embarrassed. He does. You don't like him. But that doesn't mean you want to replace him with Fidel Castro or, you know, Mrs. Fidel Castro. So somebody normal who, you know, calm the waters. Let's get back to normalcy. And if that's Joe Biden, I think he's got a good argument. You know, 72,000 votes in three states. And those are not people who were going to vote for Bernie. No. So there's a chance here. But what's amazing to me is just how you could see the media is desperately trying to cover all of this stuff because they want it to stop. The media is terrified that they're going to lose in 2020. So a lot of this is just amplifying discord and then quickly saying, we'll all unify and we'll all come together. That's the tell with these guys. That they, that's their terror. That's their fear is that the Democrats will either be broken apart and won't come together and, and we'll see a, Donald, a, pres- a second term for President Donald Trump. You know? Wow. Well, we'll see. I think stopping Trump is clearly the, the thing that'll coalesce them more than anything else in this campaign. But we'll see if it's enough and we'll see who ends up being the standard bearer. Right now, it certainly looks like Biden's to lose. All right, Rob, you mentioned crazy communists. So let's uh, talk about (laughs) some of those. That was a great transition on your part. Wall Street Journal, a 91-year-old former comrade of Cuba's late 
dictator Fidel Castro recently startled Cubans when he announced government plans to breed ostriches to help feed the masses. Comandante, yeah, we're not making that up. Comandante Guillermo Garcia raved on Cuba's main TV news show about the giant flightless bird which produces more meat than a cow. The Comandante, who runs some of Cuba's cattle breeding operations, also extolled the meat of the jutia. I think that's how you say that. It's a giant rodent endemic to the island as better than beef. No propaganda there. Pushed by the implosion of top ally Venezuela and sanctions imposed by the Trump administration, Cuba has driven into an economic ditch. The government has tightened state rations. Residents stand in line for hours to buy scarce basic goods, such as eggs, flour, and chicken. For many Cubans, ration lines and ostrich farms recall the grim special period in the 1990s after the collapse of its benefactor, the Soviet Union. As the communist-run island endured near-famine conditions, residents devoured cats and fried steaks made really of breaded grapefruit rinds. Quote, we are starting to go into a new special period, said Osmari Armas, 45, who owns a neoclassical mansion-turned-bed-and-breakfast that has been largely bereft of U.S. visitors in recent months. Things are very bad. So, naturally, uh, some folks wanting to blame Trump for this because uh, the sanctions are tighter than they were at the end of the Obama administration. But ultimately, the collapse of Venezuela, just like the collapse of the Soviet Union, has Cuba and dire straits, and the people are seeing what socialism wreaks for any society. Yeah, it's really sad. It's sadder still because uh, Cuba used to live off the crumbs of the Soviet Union, and then it lived off the crumbs of Venezuela. It's always lived uh, off of crumbs, and now those even those crumbs have dried up. The interesting thing about all the sanctions and the embargo is that, and I've been, I was in Cuba recently, and when you talk to people, the, it depends on who you're talking to, they usually finger the embargo if only the embargo was lifted. That's what they sort of believe is the, the problem with Cuba is this American embargo. But if you ask a simple question, a thought experiment, you know, a car there costs about $100,000, right? Used Toyota is insanely expensive. It's an incredible, incredible capital expense. And I said, a thought experiment, you know, 90 miles off the coast of Cuba is Florida. So what if I just got a big flatbed cargo truck? What if I got a waiver from the Department of Commerce or the State Department and just uh, and a giant one of those giant you know, cargo uh, ships and brought in uh, cars, used cars? I bought used cars at, uh, in Florida, brought them into Cuba and sold them for what I paid. What, what then? And then their response is always, well, you couldn't do that. I'm like, well, just assume the American government will let me do it. Like, no, no, the Cuban government won't let you do that. The embargo is the Cuban side. You're not allowed to bring things into Cuba. It's not that you're not allowed to send things to Cuba. The problem with Cuba isn't that Americans don't want to trade with them or that even, the, even the restrictions of the U.S. government. The problem is even if those restrictions were lifted, Cubans are not allowed to purchase those things. This is a man-made famine, as many most famines really are these days, man-made disaster. Uh, and we know the man's name is Fidel Castro. And what's astonishing to me is uh, all over the region, except for Venezuela, you see ups and downs of economies and ups and downs, and but general progress, less starvation, except in this place 90 miles from Florida. That is a perverse crackpot choice that they have made and it's tragic to watch but it has very little to do with america and american policy honestly despite all the noise rob it almost sounds like you're saying that michael moore might not have been telling us the whole truth when he did that beautiful (laughs) documentary on cuban healthcare. yeah it's right it's right and even the even look it's true it's free but 
my neighbors put out garbage on the street on Sunday nights. That's free, too. Yeah, that's exactly right. I noticed when Castro had health problems, he didn't have his uh, surgeries done in Cuba. He went to Spain, I believe. So yeah. uh, that ought to tell you something. But yeah, another example. But I'm sure it's just because they didn't do it quite right. And I'm sure if we do it, we'll do <laughs> yeah. it right. And right. Uh, we won't well, have well, any yeah, problems. Well, obviously, it's just never really been tried. Not in its pure form. Rob, always, <laughs> always great to have you with us. Have a great weekend. And we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks. Good weekend. You too. Rob Long, contributing editor at National Review Online, co-founder of Ricochet, co-host of the Glop podcast. Jim Garrity will be back on Monday. I won't be here Monday and Tuesday, but we will be back together on Wednesday, Lord willing. Until then, have a great weekend and do tune in again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.